Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, joined today by fabulous author... Ian Frazier, author of probably, arguably, when I make lists of the of my favorite books of all time, usually at the top of the list is uh, the book Great Plains. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I taught you a word with that book. You did. Remember the word Ichipasisi? Oh, yeah, but I can't remember what it meant. It's a Lakota word. Oh, it for means going... Going along a stream, crossing back and forth. Yeah. It is a very useful word. Yeah. You can say, I went down that stream, I went down that creek, Ichi Pasisi. And later I checked with Lakota people and they said it actually means sewing, but. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, but the guy was using it, the guy I was talking to was using it as a way he was telling me how to get to Sitting well, Bull's yeah. cabin. It is like weaving back and forth with a sewing needle. Right. It's like you're, yeah, it is a sewing uh, motion, but. Author of, I don't even know how many things. So award-winning, writer, humor. How many books do you have? We have a zillion written down, but it's, it's not a that. A zillion? It's like, it's slightly less. It's about, I would say, <laughs> a million, billion, trillion. <laughs> Author of a lot of fantastic <laughs> books, uh, including Travels in Siberia. Yes. It's a great book. Thank you. And culminates in a very spirited um, argument that, Stalin jokes are not okay. Stalin jokes are not okay? I don't remember writing that. You did. I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you had a big influence on that book. I did. 
because I wrote that uh, the New Yorker paid a lot of expenses for it. So I owed them a lot of that book. So I gave them the book, and they kind of condensed part of it. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't do that. And I think they did a good job condensing it. But I'm, that, I, that decided me. It's very hard when you have a book and then you have a magazine excerpt to do justice to both of them. And the next time, I, I'm not doing, not doing more, uh, any more condensing. But that was, you don't remember that was your verdict on it? No, I, I can't believe I had any advice. You did have advice. The best thing you ever said to me, you said a lot of great things to me. <laughs> the best thing you ever said to me, I can't say. Why can't you say that? I tell that? the story all the time. I wouldn't tell it publicly. I tell it privately all the time. Okay. I'll well, tell you later what you said. Okay. Um, Was uh, it financial advice? No, 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 that no, no. Okay. You, after you wrote, <laughs> after you wrote your book about the Pine Ridge Reservation, we were, um, a book called On the Res, which is a phenomenal history of the Pine Ridge Reservation and the, and the, and the, wars against the Sioux and confinement to reservation and what happened on the reservation, um, you offered a summation of, of uh, uh, you offered a, <laughs> a summation of your findings and it was, I, I just wanted to say it publicly. Okay. Well, you can tell me later. No, I'll I don't tell you later what it was. Okay. You said another great thing to me one day because, uh, so Ian Frazier, I'm, I'm going to, his friends call him Sandy. I'm going to be using the word Sandy. Uh, is from Ohio. Yes, I am. Um, you and said, you're from Michigan. Yeah. And you said to me, not long after we met, you said, whenever I think of Michigan, I think of people who say, fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. Well, I would tell you a story, a Michigan-related story about Great Plains, because Great Plains was on the bestseller list for 10 weeks. Yeah. New York Times bestseller that's list. A, that's a hard thing to pull off. And it was bumped off the bestseller list, and the book that bumped it off, that moved it, that replaced it on the bestseller list was Bo by Bo Schembechler. Oh, Michigan coach yeah. for about 50 years. He bumped you. He bumped me. And we were, of course, very opposed to Michigan football because we were Ohio State fans. But <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you another thing you said to me. Then we're going to then we're going to we're going to come back to all your work. But here's another thing you said to me one time when I got out of graduate school. I uh, I want to preface this by saying I don't mean any offense to the individual we're going to talk about. When I got out of graduate school, I largely motivated by, uh, I never told you this, largely motivated by Great Plains and what a phenomenal job you did with that book about the American Great Plains. I was I was like, I want to, and, and other things too, but I wanted to go, I was going to go back. I went to graduate school in Montana. I was going to go back to Michigan. My dad just died, so I had access to his truck. He didn't need it anymore. And I was going to go back to Michigan and drive all around, and I was going to do like a history of the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Where I grew up. Right. And I knew certain weird things about the Great Lakes. Have I talked about this before? I don't know. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I knew certain things about the Great Lakes that I didn't think anybody knew. Like, for instance, after um, after uh, who's the founder of the uh, Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church? Mm, yeah. So Joseph Smith was hanged by a mob in Carthage, Illinois. Is that right? Yes. His, there was a power struggle between his followers and there was two emerging forces came out of this Brigham Young and a guy named, uh, 
James Jesse Strange, I think was his name. One of them was like, I'm going to head out to the Great Salt Lake. Okay. To flee persecution. And one of them was like, I'm going to head to Beaver Island in Lake Michigan with my followers to flee persecution. Strange. So Brigham Young went on to like very successfully, you know, establish, you know, Zion, right? And Brigham Young goes up to this little dinky ass island in Lake Michigan. Gets no, into, strange. Strange. Yeah. Goes up to this dinky ass island in Lake Michigan. Like starts trying to intercept ships and, and act like they were in his waters and, and tax them. Like he was a sovereign nation. Yeah. He winds up getting shot by his own followers next to a wood pile along the beach. <laughs> and that was the end of his whole experiment. They'd had it with him. Another thing I knew about the Great Lakes was that, that I thought was interesting is at one time in Niagara Falls, a guy, a zoo went out of business and a guy bought all the shit from the zoo, all the animals, and put them on a barge and charged and sold tickets to watch him run the barge over the falls. I'd heard of that. Yeah. yeah. But I grew up on the Great Lakes. That Lake, nowadays so. would get you kicked off social media. If you posted reels. But a lot of people would watch it first. They would. You would not. <laughs> you'd get all kind. You'd never dig out of that hole. A third of the crowd's going, well, I mean, listen, he's going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the apathy. Just. Oh. Oh. So I, I was like armed with these things, you know. And then this book comes out by this guy named Jerry Dennis. And his hook for his book is that some dude bought a boat. I don't know. Some, like some guy buys a boat out in the ocean somewhere. In the, either way, he's got to get on a boat and sail all through the Great Lakes. So that's his sort of angle. So it's a travelogue about the Great Lakes. But in it, some bitch talks about, no offense, Jerry Dennis talks about um, the, the Mormon split, talks about the the menagerie of critters going over the falls. That took the wind out of your sails. Oh, it did. (laughs) And just as the book was coming out, I called Sandy and I said, man, there's a book coming out by a guy named Jerry Dennis. And I wrote him or emailed out to her. I conveyed this to him. And it's really just taking the wind out of my sails on this whole project. And he left me a voicemail. You left me a voicemail some days later. And it said, uh, you know, I've been thinking since you called, and I can't think of one good book ever written by a guy named Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and I started I had to think, like, does Jerry Lewis write good books? Uh, we're going to get into this whole body of work. Are um, you guys going to talk about, like, people are probably wondering how you guys even know each other. We know each other from the, so we met, here's how we met. You probably don't even know this. Well, let's see. I probably don't. When I was going to, when I was in graduate school in the writing program, you came in as like a visiting writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, of course, I remember that well. And then you, so I used to, so I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for you and lar- you and a handful, like, like Mr. Heaton from Reese Puffer High School. Right, yeah. And then, you know, probably not. Because of him, but then uh, largely because of you, because I used to submit to magazines by just sending shit in the mail, which didn't work out well. 
No one has time to look at all that stuff. And you um, vouched for me and fronted my work at Outside Magazine. Well, can I tell my version of this? Is it different than that? It's great. It's, it's a little bit mm -hmm. more. It's a little bit more nuanced. Oh, okay. I taught at uh, University of Montana for two weeks, mm -hmm. so my contact with the students in the MFA program was not large. I was just there very briefly, and you submitted a piece. And I mean, this is just a personal thing of mine, but I think if you can avoid an MFA program, avoid it. Yeah. Well, you didn't, you didn't tell that because you were talking to MFA people. Well, no. And because they were paying me. So yeah. I was just <laughs> doing what was asked of me, but, but spiritually, I'm not a big fan of MFA programs. <laughs> so you gave me this piece and it was incredibly good. It was about the weather in Michigan in Northern Michigan and I mean, it was just, it just blew me away. And I said, you quit, leave this program. You can make a living at this right now. Don't do this. Go and I could, I can, you know, talk to people. You could get pieces published right now. This is really good. And you quite sensibly finished. Mm -hmm. I've given people so much bad advice over the years, but you, you sensibly, you finished. And then you wrote uh, somewhat l later you wrote a piece about fishing in the outflow from a dam. In Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Where you went up into the tunnel coming yep. out of the generator. And sleeping there. And sleeping. Yeah. You had your boat hooked up to something along the side. I mean, it was like There was a stud, such a, a concrete for anchor disaster. driven into the roof and you could tie off on it. And what were you fishing for? Whitefish White or fish, something? Whitefish, yeah. Because like you had to compete in that spot with old men that would get up real early. So we would leave the bar on occasion <laughs> and take our boat and park it in the good spot in the dam oh this yeah we're there like we're the there sleep. yeah we'd be, sleeping, a few we'd be sleeping in sleeping bags two in the morning <laughs> old men would get up and we'd be in the tube and so the the fish would come up steelhead white fish would come up to feed on these insects because this it was a big there was a diversion in the river they like manually like mechanically diverted a big chain of the suit the saint mary's river ran it all through town and then down a slope and then it powered this big hydroelectric dam. And that thing, that, that, that river would be just so full of insect life that when it flowed back into the St. Mary's, all this like larva and mayflies and whatever are coming out of these turbines. And you could just sit there in turbines and watch fish just sitting there feeding in these, in the outwash of the turbine. So, my 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 brother and his buddy who lived there before I moved up there, they hit on this idea to just go in the middle of the night and get the good because you couldn't understand it, but certain turbines produced really well, um, and they would get their turbine by just going in the morning. So then old men would think they got it because they didn't know, and they'd pull up and realize you're sleeping in the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. I can't claim the discovery, but I I. I wrote about the experience. So you gave that piece to D McNamer, mm -hmm. who who taught at uh, U of M, and D said this is a fabulous piece, and she sent it to me, and I sent it to Mary Turner mm -hmm. at Outside, and I said this guy is great, and that was your first piece in Outside, as I recall. Dude, that was uh, I, I was happier that you know usually I people... saved your message on my machine. 
you called me after they bought it, and it was the happiest message I've ever got mm-hmm. on my machine. It's 4000 bucks. impersonate him. You, you yeah, did he said, No, I just talked to Mary Turner. I talked to Mary Turner. She loved the piece. She's going to pay me $4,000. Dude, it was such a huge amount of money. <laughs> this is like, I remember he being was at hanging the... shower doors or something at the time. No, I, don't know I was doing cabinet. You know, I was installing... <laughs> I was installing... Uh, I was installing closet shelving and then working for tr- in the tree service business. Yeah. And, right. uh, yeah. oh my God, it was a lot of money. I remember being in the bar that night. I could have just died that night. <laughs> <laughs> being in the bar that night and like certain friends were like happy. Certain friends were just so tore up. Like they couldn't even look at me. They were so jealous. I had all this money. I bought a truck topper. <laughs> I went and stayed several days at a hot spring. <laughs> Your uh, closet shelving, was it just uh, MDF, like pre-painted MDF? Yeah, I used to have to drive over to Spokane and pick it up. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, as far as your interior finishes go, (laughs) this is not, uh, this would be the bottom of the skilled labor. No, 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 bottom, no, 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 because I I installed the bottom. The bottom is wire. A good job for us was the melamine, the wood. Bottom is wire. Melamine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh. If you remember back a few episodes, we had on some anthropologists and archaeologists, and we talked about a project in which me and some other folks from the Meat Eater crew went out and butchered a bison using stone tools. We used uh, particularly Clovis points, Clovis projectile points, stone flakes, and we like gutted, skinned, butchered, boned out an entire bison in collaboration with researchers from Kent State University, um, SMU, Southern Methodist University, and Oregon State University, um, as all part of this broader study about developing a toolkit, so to speak, for how to interpret what happened at Ice Age kill sites where all you have left is bone and stone. So we were using stone tools to butcher an animal and then the researchers would be able to like look at what happened to these bones, what happened to these stones, and use it as clues, right, to put together the puzzles of what was going on when hunters during the Ice Age were chopping up bison and woolly mammoths and whatnot. That is now an episode um, that we've put together for YouTube. So look for that real soon on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Oh, this you'll, you'll appreciate this because this is from Ohio. How, okay. do, you, do you follow Ohio News? little bit, yeah. Are you familiar with the walleye cheating scandal? Oh, of course. Okay. Who didn't know about that? My God. So, well, I'll tell you something you might not know. Okay. Did you see any of the videos where he cut the walleyes open and got the weights no, out? No, I haven't seen that. Oh. No. Well, we own the knife <laughs> that was the used. Pliers. The pliers. Well, it's a Leatherman tool. Yes, that is. Well, I think it's actually just pliers. I have no, to no, go no, check no, it no, no, again. No, 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 no. It's a Leatherman. But don't Leatherman... Make with a broken only blade. Pl- oh, okay. No, okay. it's what we own the implement used to cut the walleyes open to discover the lead weights, in addition to the shirt of the man wielding that weapon. Mm-hmm. We're talking about valuable shit. Yeah. Uh, we own that stuff. So that case is trickling along. We're into the news segment. They pleaded guilty to felony cheating and missed. This is an interesting one. Misdemeanor animal ownership, presumably meaning they were owning the walleyes. Yeah, I would think that would be like over the limit or yeah. something. But right. misdemeanor that, that... animal ownership. 
So Jacob Runyon, 43, and Chase Kaminsky, who's in, which of these fellers is in all that trouble for trying to go to the bowling alley with yeah, $100 counterfeit? with their kid. <laughs> with their yeah, kid, exactly. Like, which I think plays into the plea deal heavily. I think it's Chase. Chase. He got in a bunch of trouble. He's got, like, violating a restraining order, bowling with counterfeit money. He's in, encouraging his kid to do that. I mean, that's like well, the kid may not. Even I thought none of that stuff was supposed to influence this stuff. Well, well that's why I, I did. I, that's why I didn't want to like. This I don't is think America, it does man. because there's a thing in America called. <laughs> it's not double jeopardy. It's called habe, is it habeas corpus. What is it that you can't bring up all the all the that's bad right. stuff you did? I'm not sure of the legal term, but that's what I'm getting. Dude, at. if I rewrote the Constitution, I would lead with fixing that. You'd be like, well, this guy. Oh, <laughs> well, it it does go. It, Right. When you establish somebody's character as a reliable witness, like if, if a prosecutor could get one of these fellows on the stand and be like, so you're saying that the, the fish just ate lead weights and walleye fillets mm-hmm. and you just caught the fish, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. That, that could happen. We can't prove it can't, but for you to be a reliable witness, what's your track record in lying? And what's yeah. your, right. And so they could go back. Oh, and, so you and can dig it up. Yes. Now. The why I think it does play in is just the fact that in order to pay your legal counsel and go through a long drawn out trial process of trying to defend yourself by saying, listen, although we cannot biologically prove that walleye eat lead weights and walleye fillets all the time. (laughs) I could prove that they don't eat walleye fillets. <laughs> so um, that's going to cost a bunch of money. He's already on the hook, bad pun, for uh, having to clear up his other legal troubles too. So I'm I'm thinking he's just looking at the overall cost of fighting it. Yeah, keeping keeping his head above water. Another bad pun, maybe, but yeah, they. They pled guilty to these things, okay? Um, They were initially indicted on cheating, attempted grand theft, possession of criminal tools. What does that mean? Illegal (laughs) animal... I love illegal animal ownership. But when they appeared yesterday in Cuyahoga... Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga County Court, both men pleaded guilty to two of those charges in exchange for the remaining charges being dropped. Now, Jason Fisher, who's been on this show, is glad they pleaded out. Fisher organized a tournament at which Runyon and Kaminsky were caught and appeared in the... I'm reading from our own reporting, I should point out. Right. This Go to the meteor.com. Jordan Siller's piece on the meteor.com. Uh, this is the one time I'm not, like, guilty of, of not adequately sorting or sourcing where I'm getting something from. Because Jordan's been on the damn show. So... Uh, Jason goes on to say it was nice to see they pled guilty as opposed to no contest. They admitted to doing everything that the state said they did. It's good for the fishermen in the community as a whole to put this to bed. He points out, this is an interesting perspective that Jason Fisher has. Jason Fisher says he's almost kind of glad they're not going to jail because then taxpayers would have to pay for them to live in jail. He'd rather they just took their boat away and never let them do any walleye tournaments again. So he doesn't have to think of himself footing the bill to pay them to, to give them their food, which is an interesting perspective on prison time. Usually you put people in prison because you want to stick it to them. 
but he wants to stick it to them by not putting them in prison. And let's be fair, they're doing a great job at sticking it to themselves. So, <laughs> Yeah, because then you wound up, you'd think if you got caught cheating on a walleye tournament, you would not take $100 counterfeit bills to the bowling alley. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't. If I do something a little bit bad, I like play it cool for a while. You know what I mean? You don't double down? Yeah, no. layer it on. We have a correction on a correction. Can you explain how we're at a point where there's a correction on a correction? Okay. So shortly after the podcast the liberal was redneck. recorded, oh. Trey, yep. We're Trey, talking about the, there's a podcast called The Liberal Redneck. Right. Trey wrote in that he did a little bit more digging and uh, he determined that what he had said on air was incorrect. That he had said he, that mm-hmm. the only thing going for his hometown was they held the wall, the smallmouth bass Largest, yep. world record. Right. But and, then he said they got beat, and even that was taken from them. Right. And so before it aired, Phil recorded a little correction. And, you know, because we're going to get so How did you so do that, many- Phil? Uh, it was just a quick little like, hey, Phil here, Trey texted and said, here's a little correction back to the you show. You installed that in the episode? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Can I hear it real quick? Hey, everyone. Phil here with a quick note. Immediately after the show, Trey did some research and found out that Salina and Dale Hollow Lake still hold the record for the smallmouth bass. According to him, he, quote, assumed the universe had taken that from us as well. My bad. Thanks, Trey. And back to the show. So then what happened, now we're in a situation where there's a correction on a correction because a gentleman wrote in, who is this person? He lives nearby. Okay. Kyle. Dude named Kyle writes in. He has this to say. Mr. Crowder was not incorrect in saying that the record was taken away. What he would have been incorrect in saying is that it was taken away from the lake. Right. You're thinking to yourself, what? Well, I'll tell you. The record was removed from the individual, but the previous record, which would have been the record by default, was also caught in Dale Hollow Lake. So even if the record had been permanently redacted, Dale Hollow would still hold the world's smallmouth record. Two of the top three, this is a hard sentence to understand, two of the top, oh, two of the top three and six of the top ten largest smallmouth have Damn. You know, this person, well, (laughs) there's a reason, like, when you have, let me just tell this person, if you're listening, never start a sentence with a numeral. You always spell it out at the start of a sentence. Up to 11. Yeah. And some places will make you spell anything under 10 every time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good rule. Two of the top three and six of the top ten largest smallmouth caught have come from Dale Hollow per Bass, B-A-S-S, senior editor Ken Duke. The current record now confirmed to have been caught in Kentucky waters on the Kentucky and Tennessee shared water body that is Dale Hollow was wrought with drama. Oh, so this gets thicker yet. This is what Trey alluded to before. So Tennessee and Kentucky share this lake. The current record came out of Dale Hollow Lake, but not, but out of the Kentucky waters. The fish caught by David Hayes of Litchfield, Kentucky, was weighed first on scales that were not certified. 
After being told this fish, if certified, would be the new world record, the fish was rushed to Cedar Hill Marina, which housed the closest set of certified scales. Six weeks after the fish had been confirmed, David Barlow, a guide on Dale Hollow, filed an affidavit stating that he had handled the fish, shoving multiple pieces of hardware and or weights into its gullet to increase the weight. Plot thickens. Why did he admit to that? I don't know. Couldn't live with himself. I don't know. Maybe they waterboarded him. (laughs) The IGFA denounced the world record because of the affidavit. Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources followed suit. Tennessee Wildlife and Resource Agency held on, though, and in their investigation found that Barlow was not even at the marina on the day the fish had been weighed. So he was lying about doing something bad. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Lying about doing something bad. That's when he puts his own personal integrity... (laughs) Like, he's weighing in his head, what matters more, my personal integrity or that son of a bitch having the bass record? Yeah. And he's like, I'd rather have, right? I'll forfeit personal integrity to have him not have the satisfaction of the bass record. This is how Barlow, apparently, according to this piece of journalism. So he hadn't been there. This in combination combination with the measurements of this fish, the resulting estimated weight of recorded measurements and the official weight on the certified scales resulted in the record being reinstated by both IGFA and the Kentucky State Department. The fish now holds the IGFA world record, the KDFWR state record, and the TWRA state record. So the International Game and Fish, As- Fish Association and then Kentucky and Tennessee's uh, wildlife departments. If you're thinking to yourself, by God, would I like to get a look at that fish? There's a replica of it at the Cabela's Outpost store in Bowling Green, Kentucky. If you want to pay your respects to the angler, the ramp where he launched that day (laughs) has been memorialized as the David L. Hayes boat ramp. (laughs) Gow. I love it. At any point, did they say how big the fish was? You know... That's Corinne's fault. That's not as big as the story. No, that's called bad producing right there. Corinne will dig herself out of that 11 pounds, 15 ounces. High highs and low lows for Corinne. 11 pounds, 15 ounces. Let's just call it 12. That's a nice smallmouth bass. That's a big smallmouth. Because pound for pound. Go ahead. No, no, you. If you caught a bass that big, would you turn it into fish sandwiches? Or do you got any urge to have a world record? I'd have kept it. <laughs> I'd have kept it. Assuming it's legal to keep it. Yeah. And then pound for pound, some people say it's the hardest hardest fight in freshwater fish yeah. is the smallmouth bass. That thing would have put up a tussle. Mm-hmm. Plus, they're just awesome looking. Red yeah. eyes. Yeah. Tiger stripes. Way cooler than large mouths. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reported on, I don't know if that counts. That might be overselling it. We talked about South Carolina's Harvest a Tag Coyote Program. 
And when so so South Carolina, as previously discussed on this show, is running a program right now to encourage the harvest of coyotes. I'll point out that our guest Ian Frazier had an S had a book one time called Coyote v. Acme. Yes. In which you laid out the legal case that that Wiley Coyote would have against Acme. Yes. Where he buys his stuff to kill Roadrunner. Right. I mean it's it's uh you know, it's uh, product malfeasance. I mean, they're selling this guy, and they're selling it over and over, yeah. you know? Yeah, one of those things that everybody thinks about, but nobody took the time to write, yeah. you know? And, he, you know? and then he also wrote a thing, I believe that you argued that if you really wanted to have a good relationship, you'd date your mother. Well, that was one of my very, very <laughs> early pieces <laughs> when I was like 25 years old. But. Does this fall under the bad <laughs> advice category? Uh, it was, it was advice I think taken by nobody, nobody I knew, and it, it wasn't. My mother wasn't crazy about it either. But uh. <laughs> so South Carolina is running a program to encourage uh, coyote harvest in order to, um, you know, in order to orchestrate on predator control in the interest of recovering some game species. They have been tagging coyotes and t- cutting them loose. And if you get one of the coyotes that's tagged, you get a lifetime hunting license. And they thought through it enough to be that you could also, um, is it confer? Is that the word I'm looking for? Where you give something to somebody? Or maybe transfer. You transfer it to somebody else. Meaning if I got one of these coyotes, I could give it to my daughter who's, who's 10 and then she's got a lifetime hunt license. A guy heard this. And was tell, wrote in to tell us how in, in South Dakota, they used to tag pheasants and turn them out. And if you shot a tagged pheasant, you'd be rewarded with a Cabela's gift card. And he just wanted to let us know that he one time was looking at a breasted out pheasant in a ditch and realized it had the band on it. So whoever hunted it And his coworker the took the band down and got a $5,000 gift card. Out of the ditch. Are you uh, aware of the million dollar pheasant? No. No. So same deal. Uh, and this is a, a full tourism deal. Pheasantomics in South Dakota is fascinating to me. The um, So they banded 100 birds, released them. 36 birds were turned in. And um, of those 100 birds, they had the insurance company randomly select one of those numbers, store it in electronic device in a safe somewhere, uh, and then, you know, if somebody turned in that magic number, they could win a million bucks. Really? Yep. Wow. Is that, is that like the state's money? Um, you know how these contests work is... You, because if it's state you, tourism dollars, you right? pony up a bunch of cash that is like a a deposit eventually, and you get it. the The money comes from like this insurance payout scenario, oh, huh, as I understand okay. it. But okay. they, Are you, that, they did you do think that. that's true? But I, I know it's true. Yeah. But did anybody dollars. did yeah. anybody win the million? I'm not sure if anybody ever won the million. Because it kind of seems like long. they're gambling, like, yeah, one in a hundred, it probably will never happen, you know? But you didn't, we, we don't know if anybody won. Right. Yeah. But uh, there were, you know, 36 of the bands turned in. 
And of those 36, none of them were million-dollar birds. Mm. What makes a little bit of sense, what you're talking about, is I was at a fundraiser in Wyoming one time, and they were giving away a a truck. If you could roll a set of dice and get five of a kind, which isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay? Maybe if you're playing Yahtzee with your grandma, but not if you're playing Yahtzee for a truck. So... I was there and I was I was like emceeing the fundraiser. It was a nonprofit fundraiser. And they had a guy from the insurance company down there. And the guy weighed all the dice. He came in and analyzed the dice. And he measured out where you had to stand and where the dice had to wind up so that it had to be like a legit roll. And he was a supervising, he was like an insurance man supervisor because no one's going to roll it. Right? So they had bought some sort of policy that on the... What what are the odds that you'd roll five of a kind? That'd be a quick internet search. If I can remember my basic high school probability. It's like a Yahtzee roll, right? Like yeah. five dice, five of a kind. It's, yeah. it's like a one in like... like uh, and, then, and then there's like an exponential sort of addition you have to do. It's like five times five times five. Well, and it's I would like just let someone else do it on the computer. One in 7,776. So it doesn't sound that crazy. So you had a... No, but it is. Better odds than drawing a sheep tag. One in (laughs) 7,000? 776, yeah. You had to first win a chance to roll the dice. Ooh, that makes it, yeah, much harder. So everybody's all excited about getting to be the dice roller, and then when you get to be the dice roller, you got a one in 7,000 some odd chance of rolling, of winning the thing. So they insured this somehow, and of course the guy, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, uh, shake a day in Western bars is a big deal, sure, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing. It's like, you for 50 cents, you get a chance at whatever the pot is. And it used to be the the pot of all these people losing 50 cents to the shake a day would get really high and then the state capped it for because it's gambling. Um, so I think a legal pot is... or less or $800 or less now in in the state of Montana. I can't remember which, but while I was back in my bartending days, I had several people win shake a day pots, right? I mean, it eventually it does hit. You can imagine that whoever wins that at a bar does not then just go leave and make a deposit. One little (laughs) asshole kid did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I bartended at an old man's working man's bar. Okay. And Everybody, when it, when a normal patron would win oh, by rounds the whole bar, the, yeah. all the bartenders got a big tip, you know, and then everybody, and then he'd buy a couple of rounds for everybody and then sure. maybe take some winnings home. Yeah. Um, if it was like a regular who happens to be like in their 20s, none of the money ever made it home. They went and paid rent with it. Well, they, they, <laughs> they drank it. They, they forgot oh, how the to pay rent with it. the kid that left. Yeah. You're talking about the kid that left. But the yeah. kid, one kid comes in, watches some other people roll, and it was like Halloween night, something obnoxious, and goes, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> and he's like staring at the dice, and part of me, honest to God, wanted to be like, okay, see ya. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just knew how it was going to go down. And he scooped up the money and ran out of the bar. <laughs> Never to be seen again. It was not the way you're supposed to play the game. 
I would think he invested all that money. He's a very successful businessman now. <laughs> Curing cancer. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dogs' place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay? comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. More feedback. This, this, is the last, this is the last thing, the last up top information we got to cover for today. So what was the name of the show when we talked about down in Florida? Oh, Spitting and Strutting. Yeah. If you refer back to the episode Spitting and Strutting, we had a guest on who was explaining to me how someone he knows hates me because a person from the USGS said how Python eradication programs are not effective in Florida, and he hates me for not arguing with him. Okay? That individual, that former guest who spoke on Burmese Python, the Burmese Python explosion in Florida, wrote in. So I, ha- I have a note to the hater. I didn't catch his name, but as someone shared, I, I, was, uh, I, I, I looked at his Instagram page. Um, he has a, well, doesn't matter. So Bob Reed wrote in. To say, this is the researcher from USGS who works on population dynamic issues with invasive Burmese pythons in South Florida. He said, sorry to hear that a dude in Florida hates you because I said there's no evidence that the python control programs are having a significant effect on populations at landscape scales. He doesn't say however, but you could. there's an implied however. Goes on to say, we just published a big scientific review of pythons in Florida. The conclusion from the removal program section remains the same. No available evidence of python suppression across the landscape, despite removal of over 13,000 pythons. He said, it's hard for people to comprehend just how cryptic they are and therefore how many are out there for every one you catch. As for panthers, he says, yeah, they hammer whitetails. They did. We reported on this in the past, but I'm going to re-talk about it. As for you folks in Florida who think that your deer hunting has gone to shit due to panther recovery, Um, if that is your, if that is how you weight values, okay. If that is how you weight values, you are like, if we look at just the isolate the question, are this is this is not that you that this is nothing to do with loving panthers, hating panthers, whatever. Just like like an objective reality is panthers hammer whitetails, okay. They did some work. They did some known fate survival data, meaning they put 241 collars out on adult deer. In the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge and Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida, from 2015 to 2018, they put collars on 241 white-tailed deer, 156 females, 85 males. Now, follow along here, okay? They then wait for there to be a mortality signal on the deer, and they immediately go out and investigate what happened to the deer. They had 134 mortalities. Now, 
Sandy, take a guess. 134 mortalities. Take a guess at what number of those were killed by Panthers. 100%. Do a lower one. (laughs) Because when I give you the answer, I want to be more astounding. I hate when people do that, man. I always do that to my kids. (laughs) Guess how much money I found. Million. No. (laughs) I don't know. $7. (laughs) Forget that part. Edit that out, Phil. Okay, out of 134 mortalities... 110 were predation. Now, people that go and say like, oh, hunters get them all, not even. Listen to this. Predators, non-human predators. I always like to point out that like human predators are predators. Non-human predators killed 110 out of 134. 87% of that 110 were panthers. Okay. He says a much greater rate than reported by studies conducted before the Panther genetic restoration effort, which was initiated in 1995. One deer, okay, 134 mortalities. When we originally talked about this study, we originally talked about, God, it was a long time ago. We talked about this study because we talked about the state of Florida trying to say to hunters, if you see a deer with a collar, don't shoot it because it has a collar and don't not shoot it because it has a collar. Try to act normal because they're trying to find out what kills deer. So if you're like, oh my God, it's got a collar, shoot it. You're messing up the study. And if you say like, if you're like me and you said, I'm not going to shoot a deer with a collar because that means another person has touched it and it's soiled. Um... I want to be the first person to touch it. You're messing up the study. So if people were true to that and really just shot deer, if they would have shot it, 134 deer out on the landscape with collars, one was killed legally by a hunter, two were killed by poachers. Just gives you an insane, hmm. like, like who is killing deer in Florida? It ain't people. And of the three killed by people, two of them are poachers. I, it's it's very like isolated. It's 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 like uh, it, it's borderline and no, it's, it's beyond anecdotal. It's not anecdotal. Conclusive. It's just like holy cow. <laughs> so when you're in Florida, like I just was for two weeks talking to people, and everyone you meet says the deer hunting went to shit because of panthers, and everyone I talk to, I'm like, oh, there's got to be more to the story. I can't really, uh, uh, you know, damn. Hmm. Hmm. We can bottle that, Callahan. <sighs> I mean, the the idea that people won't think that agencies have to know, right? Like, oh, you know how many panthers are out there. You know how many pythons are out there. It's just it, it's nonsensical. Like, no, most people told me I know. Oh. But they don't. <laughs> 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 it was mostly I know. If you want to know, ask me. Don't ask them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like the Python bowl that Florida kind of promotes. Uh, I was talking to a biologist down there and, and he's like, yeah, you know where every single Python is caught? It's on this two mile stretch of road that kicks off into like big Cypress. Yep. I was on that road. Um, he's like, you know why they're not caught anywhere else? Cause there's no roads. <laughs> he's like, but do you really think that that's where all the Pythons are is on that road? Yeah. You know, he's like, everything else is so miserable to go through 
for most of the year, if not all of the year. He's like, people just don't go in there. It, it takes a very special person who likes to suffer from the bugs and the heat and the humidity and the things that sting and stick you and to go in there and look for something. He's like, a lot of times when we have tagged pythons, we'll be standing right on top of the signal and it can take a frustratingly long time to find the snake that you're literally standing on, that you have a beacon attached to because they, that's what they do. Mm. Did you ever see the picture of the <coughs> python eating the deer? Yeah. Which is amazing. I mean, the deer was, I think, <clears throat> bigger than the python. Yeah, it was a crazy photo. It was a really amazing And photo. there's that python that ate a gator, and then the gator clawed its way back out, out of, the, of python the python and killed it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's great. That's and when he got back, give up when story. he got back to his friends, they're like, where you been? He's like, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> don't take a nap. <laughs> Let's start there. On a recent episode... Now we're getting into our guest subject expertise, but do you remember your, your, do you remember writing about your antipodes? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. It was like the second piece I did. Somehow we were talking about digging down. I don't know how this even came up. You were talking about. My kid's book. Uh, no, you were talking about animals found at the same latitude all the way around Circumpolar. The Circumpolar, like polar bears and uh, there's others. The, the blue mussel. Okay. There's a bunch of species globally that have what's called circumpolar distribution, meaning you take a latitude band, like the blue mussel is one I know. I don't know what the hell the latitude band is, but you take this latitude band and you can wrap that latitude band around the entire globe and they're always present. Polar bears have circumpolar distribution, but it's like the top of the ball. So it's zero to, I don't know. Above the Arctic circle. Yeah, like a very narrow band. It'd be like the top of it. It'd be like if, if you were a head, if you imagine the earth is the a head and the polar bear's distribution has a really small yarmulke, mm -hmm. that's <laughs> like him. A white yarmulke. Yeah, that's him. And other species have different bands. And that, I don't know why, that got me to talking about, a, uh, that got to be talking about the concept of uh, the, and not, it's not a concept. The term antipodes. Antipodes, right. And I'm familiar with the antipodes because of the writing of our guest today, Ian Frazier. And I was saying that I think that you were saying that where you grew up in Ohio. Okay, this is where you, you made your mistake. Okay, go on. The thing is, I had just started at the New Yorker magazine. Mm -hmm. I was writing for the talk of the town. And I got this idea, what is on the other side of the world from Manhattan? Oh. Because I was doing it for that magazine. And so it's not that different. I mean, you know, it's 400 miles different in the Indian Ocean from Ohio, the antipodes of like Cleveland, Ohio, or the antipodes of Manhattan. But um, yeah, it was just that if you drilled straight down through, you would come out in this really unfrequented part of the world. And it's, it's like 100 yards or something deep in this stuff called, and you were talking about it, like some kind of muck. Mm -hmm. It's called Globigerina ooze. <laughs> I'm going to have a jar of that for the studio. And <laughs> it's, I would like a jar of it, to be honest. And they, it's the like calcium uh, residue from these tiny single, you know, very, very small 
uh, sea creatures that have shells, and when they die, their shells fall to the bottom, and they become this ooze. Mm. But so that's the Antipodes story, and it is in the Indian Ocean. Along. But what? But in your piece, weren't you talking about towns in America? Yes, yeah, because that was how I, it first came to me, because uh, Canton, Ohio, I had heard was named after Canton, China, uh, and then there's uh, Pekin, Illinois, which supposedly is named after. Peking, as it was called then. So. But not because that was their Antipodes. That's I think I maybe up. they thought it was their Antipodes. You want to know what uh, the Antipode of this place is right here we're sitting in? How do you know? Ooh. Can you just look it up now? Sure. Yeah, it's geo geodatos.net. You can just type in search for your Antipode. Really? Mm-hmm. God, they ruined everything on the Porto <laughs> Francais in the southern uh, French Southern Territories, an island like... South of Africa, South East. That's where we'd come out if we drill the hole straight down. That's what it says. All right, here's my next question. We don't need to spend much more time on the Antipodes. I have, you wouldn't believe how often your writing um, has been discussed on this show. I've talked a lot about, I'm going to remind you of something you wrote, then I want you to tell the broader story. Okay. You were profiling, I talked about this, you were profiling a steelhead guide. Right. I don't remember his name, but I remember it hit, people would jokingly call him Melanoma Joe. Yeah, he guided just in uh, uh, board shorts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to like, it's good, there's a spoiler alert here, and then, then I want you to talk a little bit about this. Unbeknownst to you, while you're profiling him, he's contemplating suicide. And you're on a river trip with him. Right. And one night, you like, you get up to take a leak or something. Right. And you didn't know what to make of it at the time because you didn't know what you would later know. But you see him down at the river's edge in the dark at night staring into the river. And you made some comment in your piece of reporting. You made some comment about you were getting sort of a preview right. of him as a ghost. Right, right. Yeah. It was like seeing a ghost. I mean, I got up out of the tent, and uh, he's standing there, and there was no reason for I mean, it was way late. It was on the Deschutes River. Nobody around, you know, for miles and miles. And I, and I see him standing there, and I, I couldn't even believe, I wasn't, it couldn't even be, I thought it wasn't him. And I just looked, and I kept looking at him, and it was like he then kind of came back into focus and saw me. And he said something like, ah, when you get old, you got to get up and pee all the time, right? And, you know, he made some kind of yeah, nice yeah. comment like that, just a friendly comment. And it was like it was normal again. But then I got back in my sleeping bag and I thought, Why, what was he doing out there? That was, I mean, that was just weird that he was standing there. I then wrote the piece Again, this was for Outside Magazine. I wrote the piece. They sent a photographer. They took all the photos they needed for the piece. But what, what was the, when you pitched the a profile of a steelhead guide, like what were you, why were you interested in the guy? Because he was unbelievably good. And he was really, like I had gone to, uh, he guided out of uh, Sisters, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I went to that guide shop and I said, I want to, you know, fish with this guy. And they said, you will never get a reservation. You know, this guy's booked up for five years. 
And I, then that made me think, well, this guy must be really good. And then a guy I know, a good writer named Abe Streep, fished with him and said, yeah, he's as good as, you know, he's really great. You should do something about him. And so I then persisted, and then I finally did. But that was, it actually came by way of outside. Got it. Because they had heard about this guy too. So, so then, you know, I did uh, set up this trip, and it was uh, like through three, four-day river trip. And that, you know, we caught finally, we did catch steelhead. And then they took these pictures. The, I signed off on the piece. It was ready to go. And then he, uh, he committed suicide. And so I went back. I can't remember. How did he kill himself? He killed himself at a boat launch, didn't he? No, he oh. killed himself in his car. And uh, I went to the place where he killed himself. And I mean, there are lonesome places out here, but that was one of the most lonesome, I mean, in Oregon around there. It was, it was a place where people had shot skeet. And there were shotgun shells all over the place. It was just like this open patch out in the forest. And uh, he had just parked there. And he had, he had made a few little signs in the bushes around there. He had, like, left a pack of cigarettes in a bush, in the crotch of a branch in a bush. It was just, it was a spooky thing, and it was really sad. And I felt really bad for the guy because he, he, he was a brilliant guy. He was a great guy. Did he shoot himself? No, he hooked up a hose from the... Uh, from the fly shop. <laughs> and the, do you remember that oh, detail? Yeah. That's a great detail. He took a hose that the fly shop had used just, I think, maybe just to wash down its parking lot or something. And he used that hose to hook the exhaust up to his window. And the, the fly shop is where he was booking all of So he kind of had this slow descent as far right. as from reputability, right? Right. So... Um, the, he had gotten crossways with the, with this fly shop um, for you know a number of uh, I'm sure what Brody well, could had, attest to as uh, very normal reasons. Yeah, just petty. I, one thing that happened to him was he was guiding uh, clients that this fly shop really liked, and while he was guiding, his truck was repossessed. So suddenly he gets there and his truck is gone. Huh. It's been repossessed. And the guy and the people he was guiding apparently didn't mind. They thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. But uh um, You're SOL if you're a guide without a truck. Though. Yeah, you really you <laughs> really need to have the truck. But so then uh I then went back and, and reported the re-reported the whole thing and and rewrote the piece. And yeah, uh, it's uh the last days of Steelhead Joe. Yeah. You can still read it uh outside online. What are some of the things you found what are the some of the things you found out and looked at differently after you went back and worked on it more? Well, these conversations I'd had with him, uh like that moment when he was standing out there, I mean it was a brief exchange, but I, that fell into place because the guy was really thinking you know, well, I mean, I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but but it looked like he might have done it maybe even at that point or something. I don't know what yeah. he was thinking. But uh, it just that he he was a really, he, he was somebody like, and you must have this happen in, in what you do, where you will become extremely close to somebody mm. that you see only for a few days. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that happens when you're writing. Like you'll, you'll find out about somebody. You'll get really uh, very sympathetic with them and also very maybe conflicted about, I mean, Joe was, uh, he really was not well prepared, you know. He had one spay rod on this trip, you know, and he wouldn't let me bring my fly rod. He said, you're going to spay cast or nothing. 
And I had never spay cats before. And do you know how to spay cat? No. Does that, do you? I you must know. Does. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, these guys are both fishing guides. Catch, yeah. catch fish at all costs type of guys. So the yeah. spay, spay rod, uh, doesn't see a whole lot of light these days, but. Well, it's really, I did learn it and he taught it to me. And that was, that was amazing. I mean, his empathy and his ability to, to like, and, and not to make you feel bad. You know, he was like, if you have a history with coaches where coaches will tell you stuff and then you got off on the wrong foot with a coach and you just don't like to be told stuff anymore. He was very able to get past that. And he was just a kind and good man, but he was really uh, depressive and uh, he was a descendant. He was a direct descendant of Thomas Jefferson. For real? Yep. You checked it out? I, it was checked out, yeah. Outside would have checked that out, yeah. Uh, His last name was Randolph. And the Randolphs, I think Jefferson's daughter married a Randolph. So that, I mean, the Randolph is an old name from Virginia, so. He, um, um how this, I, I, there's so many parts of his story that are so applicable to conversations, get certain guides in shops, um, for anybody who's ever done that or attempted to do that as a living. So I just, I really found it crazy how you found him because there's bits and pieces of his story that are hard to find in one person, but they're easily found in every mm. guiding circle in America. Mm -hmm. So he's a, a former athlete. Right. Wasn't a born and bred steelhead person. Right. Came out, learned it, acquires this huge client list, um, you know, that are specifically requesting him, which is like a benchmark in, in the guide right. world. Yeah. Um, he hits this other super unattainable benchmark in the guiding world, which is he finds a super wealthy, very uh, attractive client and marries her, oh, right? Yeah. That's like a dream thing for, for guides. That's, yes. what, that's what keeps right. you guys going in the morning. There's always that chance. <laughs> it's a very common theme. <laughs> yeah. Is it really? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Like, like a sugar mama. Like, that it yeah. happens or that guides want it to happen? I know of one instance where it happened. It's a story. Like, it is, like I said, it's a story that is applicable in every guide circle in probably the world. But to find it all wrapped up in one person is like amazing. Yeah, I had done a profile of another guide uh, who guides out of Staten or uh, yeah, he guides out of Staten Island, and I fish. Uh, I haven't fished with him for a while, but we fish right in New York Harbor sometimes, and then we fish all along down the Jersey Shore, places that Bruce Springsteen has sung about, and for bluefish and stripers. And uh, I had already done that. Uh, some years before. So I had already done a guide profile. But the thing is, I, as a kid, I fished by myself. And I was very much brought up fishing by myself. In fact, I have fished from when I was a kid and did not need a license until I am an old man and do not need a license. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I came up as somebody fishing by himself. And when I had to fish with guides, it was a big adjustment. Because I didn't like, because I was just old, older, yeah. too old to go, you know, and plus places like the Deschutes, you have to have a guide, basically. But um, 
but so I became very uh, when I found a guy that I really liked, it was a big it was a big deal. But and, what what if I I, I got to finish the, yeah, yeah. The, the okay? But this is a rise and fall story, so it also includes all these little bits and pieces again found that are ubiquitous in the guide community, right? So he's at the top of his game, and then he starts starts losing right. in in ways that are, again, very l- relatable in all the gui- guide circles. Divorce. Um, right. Money mismanagement. Crossways with his uh, guide shops, mm-hmm. right? Starts taking some illegal trips on the side, I think, was part of it, too. Yeah, I mean, the thing But this that is ha- a familiar story to you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. To anybody who guides. He had a license to guide through the guide shop, through the, uh, the tackle shop. And when they fired him, he did not have a guide. He did not have a license to guide. And so then he got a license to do float trips, but that wasn't the same. And so he was actually guiding with a float trip license. Got it. And that was, you know, and he got caught doing that and he was going to be going to trial. And he would have lost his ability to guide in Oregon for uh, five years or something mm. like that. So he was really up against it. At so that when, point. when you did your trip, was he a I think licensed he was, fishing guide? Uh, uh, no. Uh, wait a minute. Yes, I think he still was when we did our trip because I booked that through that shop. So, yeah, I think he still was. To me, the, like, the whole picture was like this is like an under the table trip. It just had the feel of that to me because uh, all yeah, the but you can't that do that said, with a writer because you're going to get busted. I don't he think he cared. Oh. He didn't tell me, I don't think. I had no inkling of that at the time. If you booked it through a shop, it wasn't it wasn't under the table. I'm I'm pretty sure it was before he got fired. I okay. mean, probably the people from the shop are listening yeah. and they'll they'll clear this up. But, but that's they, why all those points made it just like so like captivating. That's the type of yeah. thing that happens. Well, yep. I feel like there should be uh, somebody who specializes in mental health of guides because it is uh, an enormously difficult profession. And, and it's, I mean, I sympathize with it cause I'm a freelance writer and it's just up and down and are you going to get paid or, you know, what, how, how is it going to go? And also, you know, the emotional cost of finding ways to connect with every, right, right you got a right. new client every day, right, typically, right. right? And right. You got to make those connections in order to have just good basic communication. That's safety. the beauty of having the same clients year after year. Though yes. you don't got to like you figure them out after a couple of years. You're guiding the same people over and over again, and, and yeah, yeah. It's easy. yeah. Brody got to where you didn't really take new clients. No, no. Which again is like a, one of those things that people on the climb up that's are trying of, to get to. That's part of the narrative. Yeah, Yanni. One day, so we have another colleague, Giannis. Um, who also guided. And one day he and I were sitting in, uh, we just come out of a McDonald's drive-thru here in town. Or no, I can't remember what the hell we were doing. Either way, here's a guide boat drives by. Like, obviously a guide boat. A kid pulling a, you know, drift boat. And I said, oh, Yanni, that probably brings back memories and makes you a little jealous seeing that guy heading out. And Yanni said, no, heading out, fish the same damn river. Some guy you don't feel like talking to. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> well, did you ever read 95 in the Shade? Oh, yeah. McGuane's thing? No, that, man. 92. I don't know if I, 90, 92, 92 in, the in the Shade. I don't oh, know yeah, if yeah, I yeah. did. He's been on the show, though. Has he really? Yeah, yeah. But that is a really good book about guiding. I mean, it's a kind of uh, uh, almost a melodrama in a way, but it's a, it, yeah. it's a wonderful book. I, I just got back from Florida, hanging uh-huh. out with a bunch of uh, South Florida fishing guides. Uh-huh. 
And it's just, it's so funny. Like when I first read that book with the, the politics of guiding in a new spot or guiding for new people oh, and the especially drugs in and the, all this Especially thing. in South Florida, oh man. God. Like you don't mess with other people. And it's nonsensical to yeah. me. Like I was having this, this debate on like the, ter- how territorial people are and all the things like it. It's just just wild, but yeah, they, go ahead. It's, I it's know a guides great down book. there that will not let their clients like turn on their phone because they don't want to mark in spots. Sure, mm. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having that spot get out, and then another guide's there the next day. You know, it's sure. like it's cutthroat. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dogs' place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay? comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys onyx hunt has a special offer for you too use code meat eater to receive 20 percent off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. When you were working on um, Travels in Siberia, you wound up spending a bunch of time with, I don't even know what, 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 what do you, so. I remember talking to you about this at the time. Like yeah. you spent some days out on hunting trips. I spent days with uh, Chukchi guys. Yeah, t- tell about that experience. Well, I went you from, told a really funny story to me about a seal hunting trip you went on. I don't remember the funny part of it, unfortunately. Well, it was funny to me. Okay. It was miserable uh, for you. <laughs> I went... Um, like, like, yeah, t- lay out like who, the, who those people are and what you were doing there. And... Well, I went to Nome uh, a bunch of times with the intention of flying over to Chukotka, which is the part of the Russian Far East that is across from Alaska. It's across the Bering Strait. And uh, Nome has really terrible weather. So I was up in Nome maybe five times for every time I actually flew when the weather, maybe not five, but it was a bunch of times. And finally I got to go over there. I, got, I didn't do it. I messed something up because I didn't. Can you set the book up a little bit too? I mean, like you essentially, I mean, you spent seven years working, traveling there on and off. And you essentially like you've, you learned Russian to work on the book. I learned some Russian. I, I, I didn't, I didn't get real good at it, but yeah, I learned some Russian. I drove with two guides, uh, not, uh, angling guides, obviously from, uh, St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. And that trip was like 15,000 kilometers. We took side trips and stuff like that. But that was sort of the, the center part of the book was that <laughs> cross country trip but I also took other smaller trips, and one of the smaller trips that I took was from Alaska to Chukotka. I need to throw in one more tidbit before you go. Okay. I know I told you to go, but now I'm, I'm wishing right. I'd done it in different orders. Two really funny things. I mean, the book is, like, in places, heart-wrenching, but there's two funny parts, probably more funny parts in the book. But you observe one day that you, uh, you observe a car coming down the road, and it's towing another car. Yeah. And instead of and what they're using for a toe strap is a safety belt, <laughs> yeah, a seat belt. And you had the line where you said, "And all the time I spent in Russia, that was the only time I ever saw a seat belt used for anything." <laughs> <laughs> what, when was this? Was this after the wall came down? Or yeah, yeah, you know? I I drove across Siberia in two thousand one. Oh, okay. And I got to the Pacific after seven weeks of travel. On September 11th, 2001. Oh, no oh, way. Yeah. So I'm there, and I, have a, I had a sat, satellite phone, and I have a message, just a text message from my wife saying, we are okay. <laughs> and I hadn't heard anything about it. I didn't know anything about it, so then I found out. But uh, just to go back to talking about those, because I remember t- telling you about this, and you being fascinated by these guys. They were the best hunters I had ever seen, these Chukchi guys. 
And I had hunted with you by that time. But are they is so they are I they're mean Siberian. they have to be like linguistically related to to the Inuit cultures in the far yes. north, right? It's just Yeah, I mean linguistically they are connected. Some people in that part of Russia have relatives like on St. Lawrence Island. Okay. And if you saw, if you remember from the news not that long ago, they started, Russia started going out and recruiting soldiers in these really far-flung villages because they didn't want to be recruiting in Petersburg and Moscow and getting people all upset. Mm -hmm. And so they went out and all these people, these, you know, who, who were living out in the far parts of Russia, they were feeling the pressure of recruiting. And these two guys took a little aluminum boat and went from uh, Chukotka, I think, to St. Lawrence Island and then to Alaska. Hmm. But they got out of it by just going across the strait, and that happens. I mean, people do cross the strait. Sometimes they come from uh, Chukotka to St. Lawrence Island just to see relatives. They do that uh, in the summer. And uh, so I was up there, and I, we just went out uh, to a salmon camp, which is a really cool place where you just hang around, your nets fill up with salmon, you pull in the salmon, you know. But not commercial. This isn't no, a commercial. No, this is this native is people who can, who, who can do that. Uh, I guess they have special permission to do it, but they take a lot of salmon and they put them in big tubs and salt them down. And the main thing that they need is salt. And the salt back then was coming from the U.S. But all the stuff that they had, they had Evinrude motors, you know, they had American rifles, they had American nets, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, that was where they got their supplies. But they they build little cairns of rocks on places where uh, a seal is likely to be swimming around and they just sit there for a really long time with their guns propped on these cairns and they wait for a seal to pop up and they shoot the seal in the head. That's the part that you can see. And I was in a boat with a guy who hit a seal in the head with no scope. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, what is it? Just open sights or whatever yeah, you call yeah. it. And uh, it was just a phenomenal shot at some distance. And the water is really blue and it's extremely cold. So you don't want to fall out of the boat. You're going to die. But, uh, but just to see that seal hit and then this big plume of blood in that blue water. And he brought the seal in and uh, butchered it out. And his wife uh, made the seal liver with angel hair pasta. <laughs> <laughs> and it was excellent. It was an excellent dinner. Uh, did, uh, there's another funny thing you talk about that, and I don't know if you ever figured it out. Um, this actually is funny. Where when, when you told me the story about when I said it was a funny story about the day you went, is you really wanted, you were out, and you were telling me about how badly you wanted to go home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're motoring along in a boat. And you talk about how all of a sudden this duck flies overhead and spins around and lands in some bay. And all you wanted to do is get back. And you saw them all watch that duck. And you're like, please no, please no, please no. <laughs> and all of a sudden he said that boat turns. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, really? <laughs> it was an eider duck. And eider down is real valuable so yeah, yeah they so, so it was like you're like headed back but then you're like oh son of a god really <laughs> <laughs> we gotta no, go they would there. stay they would stay out all day and and they and they spoke good russian i mean they spoke chukchi but they spoke russian and they had been educated in petersburg mm -hmm. they the guy had been head of his reindeer brigade under communism 
You know, they had like different reindeer uh, collectives. Oh. And so he was really well educated. He knew a lot of poetry by heart. And, uh, you know, but he was, he was like American. He was like an American native guy. And at that time, the native people there I, that I saw were doing better than the Russian Russians. Is that right? Because they just had stopped uh, for a long period there, had stopped doing uh, trips to Russia. You know, they had stopped uh, to the Far East. They had stopped supplying those really remote cities. So all the, I could have bought an apartment there for a thousand bucks, a beautiful duplex in Providenia, Russia. Really? Could. Yeah. Uh, what I was saying about a, a funny thing, a funny story you do tell in that book is you're camping somewhere alongside of a road, and you're in your tent, and you and you wake up at night. And there's a bunch of drunk guys that have somehow like also pulled out at the turnout. You're like camped on a yeah, turnout, right? Right. And you know enough Russian. To know that they're debating <laughs> doing something to your tent, but you don't recognize, <laughs> but you didn't recognize the verb. No, I, <laughs> the noun is palatka, and and they and and the the uh, uh, accusative that is, it was obviously in the accusative case. In the so they were saying, you know, what are we going to do to the palatka? This I could keep hearing, <laughs> and one guy's saying, ah, don't do anything to it, cut it out, don't, you know, go, oh, come on, we're just going to do blah blah blah. And I assumed they were going to tear it down and just leave me lying there in my sleeping bed. <laughs> and my guides, of course, were gone because my guides managed to meet women <laughs> all the way across the Russian Federation, and. They would, they would uh, disappear in the evening, and I'd just be there, and there'd be drunks driving around. And I would go to sleep, and they would bring women for me to meet. <laughs> and they would say, oh, we told them that we had an American, and she's an elementary school teacher. And I would get out. I'd be in my pajamas. I'd talk briefly, <laughs> and I would go back to bed. I didn't, I, I, I didn't drink in Russia, and I didn't. Do anything else like that because it, are you totally would, not drinking right now yeah i haven't had a drink in 16 years yeah almost 16 i remember years. when you were quitting drinking yeah i remember you telling me you're sick of the hangovers i was sick of the hangovers and uh it, i was just it was just i drunk enough i was tired of it and never got back into it never got back in no do you feel like an urge or no no not, i don't not anymore do you drink na stuff I do, and I get made. They people make fun of me for it. Sure, yeah. I mean, ordering a, a non-alcoholic beer in Russia is like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> like you have to be insane, you know. So, uh, yeah, but it was. I mean, I felt I needed my wits about me there, so I didn't. I didn't drink, and people had told me my Russian friends had said, you know, oh, you'll be killed. They'll, you know, this is a terrible idea, and. Uh, I think it was less dangerous than they had made it out to be, but I didn't really, I, I, I was blind with kind of romantic notions of what Russia was like and what Siberia was like. So I didn't, you know, like the recent thing that has happened, I mean, the invasion, I, it was just, to me, I thought Putin was just funny. Mm. You know, he's not just funny. He's not funny. Uh, but I thought he was funny. I mean, you can go online, find him singing, uh, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. Fishing big old yellow perch and no shirt on. Fishing yeah. northerns and no shirt northerns. on. Northerns. He's into northerns, yeah. You wouldn't be able to do that book now, man. No. I mean, I might be able to go there, but I don't think I would. I, who knows, getting back, getting out. I don't know. I wouldn't try it now. It does sound like 
a, a lot of that romanticism did line up for you, though, once you made it out there. Well, I mean, I went to places that a famous traveler from my family's town, where my family lived in Ohio, Norwalk, Ohio. This guy named George Kennan went there in the 1880s after the assassination of the Tsar in 1881. There were all these people shipped to Siberia in order for this clampdown to be effective, and it wasn't really effective, but they shipped a lot of people there. And George Kennan went there to see how those people were doing that had been exiled. And the Tsars were disorganized and liberal or whatever enough that they did still permit that kind of travel. But Kennan had a minder, uh, some kind of police minder with him a lot of the time. But he, uh, actually, I think maybe he was pretty much on his own because they, they liked Kennan. And he did this amazing uh, book about Siberia uh, called uh, Siberia and the Prison Exile System, which uh, Anton Chekhov read and made his own trip. So this guy from Ohio <laughs> inspired one of yeah. the greatest writers of all time, Anton Chekhov, to go to Sakhalin Island, So, uh, which is, uh, I think, south of Kamchatka, but it's another island like that. Were we recording when I said something about don't make don't make Stalin jokes, or was that pre-recording? I don't know. I, don't I think know. we were. I'm, if I know Phil, we were recording. Earlier, I made a comment, and you looked. You looked when I said that that you had that there was a part of the book where you argue about that Stalin, like how people make Stalin references, and you get into the toward the end of your book, travels in Siberia. You get into the Gulag system, right? Just all the. I mean, you, I don't know if you still remember some of the stats, but I mean, just like the horrible atrocities. It was a horrible, yeah, they were death camps. I mean, they, there were people that, uh, there were degrees of horribleness, but the people that mined gold in Magadan, you know, I mean, Russia, nobody was honoring anything. Russia had to buy stuff with gold because they had already defaulted on their debts when the Soviets took over. And, and the gold mining operation in Magadan was a murderous thing, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, millions of people killed. Yeah. I mean, from the beginning of the uh, Russian, from the Russian Revolution through like the end of the Soviet Union, I, I mean, people estimate 60 million or 70 million. That includes, you know, like what we lost 475,000 people in World War II, which is a real serious thing. If you think about, like, in terms of now what our population is, that would be a serious like the thing. U.S. lost that. The U.S. lost yeah. that. And for, for reference, 57,000 in Vietnam. Right. And, and right. four, what, what was the number? 470, I think it was like 475,000 in the Second World War. It, it was under, I believe, under 500,000. The Russians lost 20 million in that war. So that when I would say to Russians, well, we helped you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they were, oh, jeez, you know, like, like we held their coats while they fought the Nazis, you know, like, yeah. I mean, they don't think, they don't take it seriously, even though we did supply a lot of their air force. A lot of their air force yeah. was made in uh, Detroit and then shipped up here to Helena, where they painted the Soviet markings on the planes and then flown up to Alaska and pilots from Alaska would fly it over to the Russian pilots who would pick it up on the other side and fly it back to the... Uh, uh, to the Western Front. So uh, we did participate very much in helping them, but they don't, they didn't, the people I talked to were very unimpressed by that. Uh, there's a piece you wrote 
I don't know, you wrote this a long time ago, but I've always loved it, is uh, you were living up in, did you live, you were living in Big Fork, Montana? Yes, yeah. Um, and when you were living in Big Fork, Montana, you liked, you liked uh, the amount of reporting in the local newspapers that would occur about bears. Yeah. And you wrote a piece of, you wrote a piece of reporting about how bears are reported on. Yeah. It was called bear news. Yeah. And I remember in it, you made the observation about when a bear committed a senseless killing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That that a grizzly committed a senseless killing (laughs) of a human. (laughs) Did you ever read that book, Night of the Grizzlies? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that was the same guy that wrote Give a Boy a Gun about Claude Dallas, right? I don't, his, his name is Olson and he wrote Jack, sports. Jack Olson. Jack Olson. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, th- I, th- I think Jack Olson. I'm not, I'm not familiar. So the Night of the Grizzlies. Familiar with Night of Grizzlies. Yeah. Night of the Grizzlies. Do you, I, I, do you remember the story well enough to tell yeah, the story? Yeah, it was oh, two yeah. night. Well, you may remember it better, but two bears after there not having been any bear attacks for years on the same night in very different, widely separated parts of the park. Uh, killed a camper. Each bear killed a camper. Yeah, so two bears two... killed two women, and no one had been killed by a bear in right, that park. And I don't right. know how long it happened the same damn night. Right. It was this. Yeah, it was a very. It's uh, my wife and I were married in Big Fork, and we gave that uh, book as a gift to our wedding guests. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't really. We just were thinking, wow, this is a good book, and we didn't think it was kind of counterproductive in terms of Montana tourism, but, but, uh, the, um, Todd Strasser is your give a boy a gun. Oh, Jack Olson didn't write a book about Claude Dallas. Um, not that I'm seeing here, but, uh, tourism plays heavily in wildlife news in the greater, uh, Glacier National Park, uh, uh-huh. whitefish, tourist ecosystem up there so yes the um bear news is a is a real thing and there's a lot of suppressed news from (laughs) a lot of a lot of folks uh inside the park as i understand it so walk me through that part of your life when you so you came to big fork and how how did you get going on the the idea that you'd write a book about the american great plains and travel all over the great plains and live in a van well, I, I came to, uh, I left uh, New York City and moved out, and I didn't know anybody in Montana. I didn't know one person. And uh, I moved up to uh, near Kalispell. For what reason? I just, I just wanted to change everything. When was this? That was like 1982. And uh, uh, so it was, I just made a huge change, and I just moved out. And I wanted to, uh, the I wanted to just do something bigger, and I didn't know quite what to do. I was writing short pieces, and they're very addictive short pieces because, you know, you get an idea, you do it, you get paid, you then get another idea, you do it. And and so I wanted to try to do something bigger, so I moved And you were like, at that time, you were focused pretty much, I mean, you were focused on humor pieces. I wrote a lot of humor pieces back then. And also I wrote uh, for the talk of the town of the New Yorker. And I had done a few long pieces. Uh, I did a profile of a guy who had a tackle shop in New York City. 
And that guy was an old-time colleague of Dan Bailey, of, you know, Missoula Dan Bailey's. Dan Bailey, is that Livingston or Missoula? That's Livingston, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that guy was coming out here a lot. The guy that had that tackle shop would come out here and fish. And so he had told me a bunch of stuff about places to go. So I just came out here. The reason I, I went up to uh, Big Fork, uh, I'm not even sure. I kind of just liked it up there. And it seemed like there were too many writers down. Did people think that. you were doing a Livingston really... Livingston was filled up. Did, you, yeah. did, did people think you were doing a bad, like a career mistake to leave the city? I mystified people. It mystified people. The editor of The New Yorker, uh, William Sean, was this genius editor, and he was this uh, phobic, you know. He was afraid of a lot of different things. And I told him I was moving to northwest Montana, and he said, uh, uh, do they have stores there? <laughs> <laughs> and I said something like, well, it might be kind of hard to buy specialty items for I mean, I and 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 I realized he meant, can you get food there? I mean, it was this. <laughs> he was from Chicago. He should have known a little bit, but but it was seen as a, a an eccentric thing to do. And I came out and I tried to write a novel, and uh, uh, it was not a good novel. And then when I when that do you, remember, do you care sharing what the novels about? The novel, did you write it? I wrote a, a good bit of it. The novel was about my town in Ohio and when the town, uh, which is a suburban, mostly white town, and when the town decided to have, or when the school that I went to, which was a private school, decided to expand its student body and bring in black students from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And that kind of cultural moment, which was interesting and, uh, you know, it was uh, very uh, revealing of what my town was like, you know, you don't oh. even know that you're in a monoculture, yep. you know, when you're in some small towns in the Midwest. I mean, uh, uh, most small towns, but anyway, it was about that. And it just did the, I don't have the, the fiction gift, I'm afraid. So what is your, you mentioned big Fork cause there weren't any, why you've mentioned a lot of places like you're, you don't like to live by writers. I like to just. You one live. time wrote off to me. You dismissed the whole state of Maine, <laughs> <laughs> which I take shit for today because it was a foolish thing to do. I no, you these... were like, you were like, I, yeah, I can't go to Maine. I know. It's like I'm... writers there. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you uh, if you brush shoulders with any Montana like McGuane or, I never or did. Harrison. I or never did because no. you didn't want to be around them. Well, I mean, I, had, I I will go public on record that I admired Tom McGuane beyond anything. I mean, I find so many things that I'm thinking uh, are things that McGuane wrote or just uh-huh. ways of putting things. And I know all his work. And I used to be able to recite Rancho Deluxe, mm. like word for word. I would go into a bar and say, I could tell you the entire movie Rancho Deluxe. And people would bet me that I couldn't. <laughs> and they would give up after about maybe seven minutes. You're like, I need 79 minutes. <laughs> you know, and, we uh, we went and, we didn't really use it for anything, but we went and set up that exact, at, at Chico Hot Springs. Oh, yeah, with that scene. We went and set yeah, up yeah. that exact scene one day. Like everybody sitting That's, in the places. Oh, that but is instead of cowboy hats, scene. we had fur hats on, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but so you know, I kind of felt that 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 part of Montana was already pretty pretty crowded, and I didn't know much about Big Fork. I didn't know anything about it, and uh, 
Well, that is uh, Edward Abbey wrote out of the North Fork there, spitting distance from Big Fork. Uh, yeah, I, that I didn't know about at the time. You wouldn't have gone there if you I knew I probably would have. Well, the thing is, if you know where every writer has been, you'll end up going nowhere. Because right, writers exactly, exactly. But, uh, they do get around. But then when that novel kind of didn't work out in a big way, uh, I called up uh, Mr. Sean, the New Yorker editor, and I said, uh, because I had driven around out there just for fun. Out yeah. on the Great Plains. Yeah, I would just go over the divide and go out and just drive all the way, like to Williston or, you know, uh, a lot in Montana. And I had taken my friend Jamaica Kincaid out there. And that was really fun because she's West Indian and had never really seen the American West. And we would go into places and, you know, she's taller than I am. And uh, I'm not that tall, but she's like an inch or so taller. And, and people would just, wow, you know, because that was uncommon then to see like a black woman in a, in a, like uh, Cutbank, Montana, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so I had had a lot of interesting things, you know, driving around. And I told, when this novel didn't work out, I decided I would do a book about the Great Plains. And I called up Mr. Sean and I said, I want to write about the Great Plains. And I would do it uh, as if I was profiling a person. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is a place, but I would profile it as a person. And I said, and I explained some of the stuff that would be in it, you know, and like b the Buffalo or, you know, the battle of the little big horn or stuff like that. And Sean, listen, he didn't say anything. And then when I had finished my explanation, he said, would it be funny? <laughs> well, I don't couple, know. You're like, maybe <laughs> like, a couple parts. <laughs> 50 million buffalo wiped out? I don't know. Is that funny? Uh, but so then I ended up doing it, but that took me a long time. That took me years and years to do. Did it? Yeah. I drove around out there for summer, summers after summers. Uh, I got married out there. I wouldn't have stayed if I hadn't got married. Did you fish Flathead Lake while you're living in Big Fork? Yeah, I did. It was kokanee. I didn't do mm -hmm. very good. <laughs> Have you fished it? Oh yeah, the kokanee are all gone now. Yeah, are I mean, they that, gone? That dates the fishery, and they're wow. trying. They're trying to eradicate the lake trout now too. Yeah. What are they? What are you fishing for up there then? Lake trout. Lake I mean, trout. It's well, a so lake why are they trying fishery. to eradicate? This big yellow. Because perch. there's a native species of char called the bull trout. Oh wow! That they're trying. Yeah. The they're trying to lower the lake trout population and bring bring the bull trout back. And the kokanee story up there like when you were there that was a huge tourism story too absolutely they'd, they'd spawn all the way up to mcdonald lake absolutely and then yeah. all the um you know all the all the pretty animals would come in it was a great time for tourists yeah and the bull trout would get real fat off kokanee too uh-huh and then there was a theory that because of the the water part of the water column that kokanee occupied and the part of the water column that lake trout, if they introduced them, would occupy. Oh, keep back. I got confused. This is a fisheries management introduction. Oh, this story. was baked into the inner, like it was an intentional introduction. Yes. Based on this assumption. Yes. I see. And then yeah. you have these mice shrimp that feed everything mm -hmm. and how they would come up with the warmth of the day that all these species would just magically like intermingle. It was like a choreographed dance. Exactly. Exactly. Except but no one was going to the dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that's just a fun aside for you. But anyway, no more kokanee and flathead. Well, that was something where people would come up and they'd bring their own, like, canneries, you know. They'd have uh, motorhomes and they'd can, you know, it was like a unit of uh, exchange among people, like cans of kokanee salmon. And, I mean, it was a huge deal. But I, I didn't know that they were no longer in the lake. That's amazing. Yeah. And that up there uh, where they would spawn, the eagles that were up there, and it was just amazing birds. I mean, snowy owls and stuff. It was really incredible. That's I didn't cool. see a snowy owl up there. but Tell folks about your the piece you wrote about wild hogs. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching your wild hog <laughs> episode, by the way. Uh, yeah, I just, I did a piece about wild hogs because, uh, uh, they, they really are like, there's no other animal really like them, you know, that every man's hand is against them. Like they're places with no seasons. I think almost every place you yeah. can hunt them all year round. It's got, well, here, here's the interesting twist that this might've happened after you wrote your piece about wild hogs. Is there an interesting twist now where in order to prevent the spread of wild hogs, they are banning the hunting of wild hogs. And one might be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But what they have found is the spread of wild hogs in a lot of places is facilitated by hog hunters. Who bring hogs in, you're saying. Because they're like, man, we had such a good time hunting hogs down yeah. in Texas. yeah. That we brought a few home. Right. And we're going to cut them loose in our neck of the woods, and then we'll be able to hunt hogs. And so Missouri, Arkansas, other areas, when they look at the spread, they were looking, and they're like, man, a leading spread vector mm -hmm. hunter. is aspiring hog hunters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to make it that you can't hunt hogs, just to get out ahead of it. But well, yeah, there is no, like, from the hunting world, any conversation about humane treatment, any conversation about ethics, anything like that, um, it goes out the window of hogs. Right, yeah. Because they're, they're just a reviled, right? I mean, you get into it. They're reviled in, 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 in a hated critter, man. But I think, you know, that makes the – there's something uh, kind of holy about that, you know, like that. You're just a total outlaw, you know. <laughs> I mean, and and when you see the stuff they do, it's just incredible. Like the way they will root, or the way they will, uh, they get up next to uh, phone poles uh, that have been painted with creosote, and they want to get that creosote tar all over them, you know. And then you'll see these things; they're just all tarry, and oh God, I mean, they'll. Uh, there's just. Uh, the damage that they do, the, the uh, you know, you'll find these little items about how they tear up, the way they tear up people's yards and the way they tear up, you know, peanut fields. And it's just, and the only thing that's limiting them, I mean, we don't, I think, have them in New York State yet, uh, or in, I don't think we have them in New Jersey, but uh, there's not much that limits them. I mean, they're, they can go anywhere, pretty much. If There's got to be water. I think according to the USDA, is it 34 states according to the USDA? It's I think a very it was, high number. I think it was 39. I, when I did it, it was 34, and I think it went up since then. But, but uh, I was working with the farmer in Arkansas earlier this year, and they, they started with traps on their 
farm that uh, would just be triggered by the pigs walking in. And they kind of came to the conclusion that this wasn't working well enough um, because they'd also have cameras set up around the the traps and they'd see like one pig would get caught and 15 others would squeal around the thing and, and run away. So they custom built some remotely operated traps. So now a pig can't set it off by itself, but the camera goes on and you can remotely trigger the trap. He told me they did a family trip to the Bahamas one time <laughs> and he caught <laughs> 20 pigs in a trap. Wow. So the, the so goal- So you pick your moment. <laughs> yeah. The goal now is to get the whole sounder of pigs in, uh-huh. then remotely operate the trap. Uh-huh. And they're, they're catching tons of pigs throughout really? the year. But it is zero fun. There is no, it is just more work for this family. And it takes like three, four hours to go in, dispatch all the pigs, remove the pigs, clean everything up. And, and it ends up just all being gator food in the, in the bayou, which is a horrible waste of meat that they Mm. recognize. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, they're like, and Tomorrow or next week, we'll do it all over again. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't stop. But they're estimating their crop damage um, somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand dollars annually. Wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just he's like, there's a lot of people who uh, recreationally hunt pigs, like, and because of that, we're doing this. Yeah. Like it, and it does. There's no end in sight. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild thing. Yeah, I talked to a guy from. Uh, uh, organization that studies uh, wildlife disease vectors, and he tra- traps hogs uh, and tests them. And he said that he, if he had hogs in an enclosure, he said that uh, he said he was very careful never to look over the enclosure down at the hogs. And I said, well, why? Why don't you want to look over? And he said, because they'll jump up and bite you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so I, these are pretty fierce. Fierce animals. I mean, they're just, they're so smart too. They're just, and they're so, they're just so cynical. They have a very cynical attitude, I think. I saw a, uh, a contest down in uh, uh, Georgia where they were using hog, you know, dogs that ran pigs. Yep. Yeah. And it was, a, it was like a rodeo where they had these to see which uh, pigs could, uh, dogs could bay a hog the fastest and stuff like that. And the dogs are all wearing Kevlar and, you know. And they had these big pens of wild pigs that they had caught for this event. And the wild pigs are just lying back in there just like, yeah. I mean, they, were just, they were just Not like, too bothered by the prospect. So this is going to happen. So what? Something else will happen. They just, they have their eyelids are always at half mass. You know, they're just like, yeah, okay. I mean, this is going to happen to me. They they didn't <laughs> like they they just weren't involved at all. They were ready to go along with it. And all the time, the dogs were <laughs> the dogs were just like manic on speed. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or 
You open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched Hunt Research Tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That hog piece, I don't know if you remember the details on it, but in the end of the hog piece, you got into looking at hog distribution maps. Oh, yeah. I got in trouble for that a little bit. Did yeah. you? Well, I mean, it really pissed off the people that I had reported, done the reporting with. Yeah. You got to looking at hog. Well, well, let's keep this apolitical as possible. Okay. You got to looking at hog distribution maps, and you got to looking at voting maps. Right. I matched the two. And you found, <laughs> you overlaid them and found that you can map 
partisan politics right. in the American South and other places. All over the country. Based on, even in the areas of California, and you can look at hog density and know where they're going to tip on a presidential election. Right. If a county has hogs, it is a red county. <laughs> That got you in trouble? <laughs> well, the guy, the hog expert who I worked with, I think, didn't, didn't like the article. And he was an unbelievable guy. He was a really good scientist and able to, like, you know, if a hog was baited up, he could throw the hog. He'd get behind the hog and, like, pull its legs out from under it and uh, put it on the ground, you know, just like himself mm -hmm. going at a hog. I mean... That seems, some of these hogs are really big. And that was back in the days of Hogzilla. You remember oh, that? Gosh, he wasn't yeah. a wild hog, though. He right? was yeah. a tame, he was a yeah. farm-raised hog. And Hog Zelda, which was a sow. Uh, in terms of writing about people who get mad at you, do you want to know the advice you gave me? <laughs> God, Steve, I don't remember this. Okay. You told me, if you include a line about how good looking they are. <laughs> if you say someone's ruggedly handsome. Yeah, yeah. You can say anything you want about them. They'll never get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> they will only get so mad. And it's really true. It's kind of yeah. like the compliment sandwich, right? <laughs> you're <laughs> like, if you got to say something bad about someone you hung out with while you're working on your piece, just talk about that they're good looking. Right. It's no, like no. when they read it, they'll, 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 they'll come away feeling better about the piece. Right. It's, it's quite true. It's like pulling the hind legs out of a hog, right? Right. They can't, yeah. they still got two <laughs> legs on the ground. All right. Like, you only got it half wrong. Uh, right. I'm gonna, there's another piece of advice you gave me, and I've repeated this a hundred times. In, in book publishing, you need to write a, um, generally, generally speaking, people will write a proposal and they will sell this proposal. Brody knows where I'm going with this. They will sell this proposal to a publisher who will then give you an advance on royalties. So you write, I'm going to write a book about wild pigs, okay? And you're like, it'll look like this. Here's my perspective outline. Here's like what one of the chapters might look like. Here's my whole plan. Publisher will say, that sounds like a phenomenal idea, a great idea. We'll give you X, we'll give you uh, $10 for the book. You will give you three now. We'll give you three after you write it, and we'll give you four on the day that it publishes. And, that, and that's like a, a brief outline of how book publishing goes. And I told you that I was working on a proposal, the first proposal I wrote. And you told me um, to the effect of, man, if I ever wrote a book proposal, and they bought that book, the first thing I do is throw away the proposal. <laughs> <laughs> I was down on proposals back then. Yeah. And I quote that all the time. Well, that, that, you didn't follow that advice, so I don't think. Well, I write proposals all the damn time. Your first book, wasn't your first book the Escoffier book? Was that the yeah, first book? Yeah, I wrote a proposal book? for that. Don't you kind of see all of this is coming from that book? I mean, the, yeah, but all of everything comes from everything, man. Yeah, that's a ch that's a stopping point. It was a really, I mean, because you're you're finding stuff to eat in the outdoors throughout that book. Yeah, I remember you even got pigeon eggs from like an air conditioning unit somewhere. We were talking about that the other night because I was I had a buddy of mine. <laughs> I did. I had a buddy of mine over for dinner. So when I, you know, I talk about leaving, finishing school, yeah, and going to the Great Lakes, right? And I wanted to write about the Great Lakes. And I kind of lost the thread of it and missed being out west real bad mm -hmm. and hadn't even really moved out of where I was living and went back. And that's when I got started on Scavenger's Guide to Oat Cuisine. Right. Okay. I was living in Missoula at the time. And the other night my buddy Dave was over 
And my buddy Dave was remembering about when I was going to collect pigeons under the Higgins Street Bridge. Okay, yeah. And we had gotten hollered at by some policemen down there for having an extension ladder under the bridge. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. So Dave was reminiscing about he had kids, and he was talking the other night about how he didn't want to go back with me because he didn't want to get in trouble having kids. So we're just talking about collecting. That's all. Uh-huh. Okay. But, but we you... developed a strategy. Where, uh, pigeons would, around that town, they like to build nests between air conditioning units. Yeah, yeah. And buildings. Yeah. There's like a little, the, the air conditioning units are set out six to eight inches. Mm-hmm. And they like to get there. So we made a blocker with a pizza box and a stick. And we made a landing net type thing where you could put a blocker on one side a landing net on the other side, and then bang on the air conditioning unit, and the pigeons would go <laughs> into the net. Uh-huh. And then we would, I would keep these pigeons in my apartment trying to get the eggs from them because uh-huh. I wanted to raise my own squab, okay. which was – Scoffier has 34 squab preparations. I think I even gave you the word squab. You I might have. That when we went on that hunting trip in the Missouri breaks, yep. and there were all those pigeons up there and those – Bluffs. And we'd go hunting for them. Yeah. Man. And I said that I had that I had eaten those. I had eaten them. And they were called squab, you know. Yep. It was Baby like, pigeons. Yeah. Which is a far cry from adult from an adult pigeon from in a culinary from a culinary mm-hmm. standpoint. Totally different colored flesh, totally different eating wow. experience. So I'd reared, you know, through a lot of attempts, eventually reared my own squab, which became a big part of that book. Mm-hmm. Did you eat them? Mm-hmm. Did you name him? Some of them. <laughs> yeah, I remember having one little red because he had a little red. He had a little red zip strip around his ankle. What are you working on now? What have you been working on lately? I just finished a book about the Bronx. Oh, really? Yep. Is there any fishing in it? Uh, oh, ta- you also got to talk about your book, The Fish's Eye. Okay, The Fish's Eye is a book exclusively. I think. But then I want to hear about fishing. the book about the Bronx. But first, yeah. talk about The Fish's Eye. The Fish's Eye is just a bunch of different pieces that I did over many years about fishing. And uh, uh, some of it, it's all over the place. Some of it is out here. Uh, some of it is in, uh, I like the Yellowstone or uh, uh, a lot of it is, it's mostly fly fishing. And I'm kind of more a match the hatch type of person. You know, I, I don't do, I, I haven't fished with bait in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't, and I don't really spin fish very much anymore. Uh, I, I fish for shad, but I use, you know, weighted, uh, fly line and leaders, you know, I, I fly fish for shad. Uh, and so Do you still fish with John McPhee? Is he yes, still alive? I do. Oh, yes. John's alive. Oh. Yes. We talked about that recently, didn't we? Mm-hmm. And I said I was sure he was alive. John is a great fisherman, and he's 92. 92? Well, you yep. can see how I thought he might not be alive. Well, anymore. he is old. Remember but... that radio show used to have that game called Dead or Alive? <laughs> and you'd call, you'd like a listener would call in to play, and they'd give a name, and the only point of the game was you had to know if they were, you had to guess if they were dead or alive. Listen, I'm not trying to hack on John. <laughs> okay. I'm a big John fan of John McPhee. Is... Ninety-two is a lot of time. That's a lot of years. Most people don't do that. I know, and he's, so and he's still fishing. Me. You could forgive me uh, for thinking that maybe, like the inevitable, I, I, I forgive you for that. Maybe the that. inevitable overcame him. John is going to be around for a long time. 
He is, uh, he outfishes, I mean, he outfished me the last time I fished with him. He still him. fishes. Oh my God, he's a really good fisherman. Does a lot of fishing and coming into the country. He and does. And he does a hell of yeah. a lot. And then he's got the whole book about American shad called well, Founding Fish. He, he is the best shad fisherman. I mean, he's studied them. He knows everything about them. Was it you or John McPhee who equated cleaning an American shad to fixing a watch? That was him. Oh. I think that was. That's a great line. Well, you know, the thing about American shad, uh, if you do not fillet it uh, and you're eating it when you're hungry, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> it's a very frustrating. <laughs> because you're taking little pieces of meat out from all this complicated bone structure. It's like a walleye pike bone structure sort of. Yep. You know, they have two sets of ribs. Yep. And it's very, very intricate. I might have said taking a, like taking a watch apart. It's very hard to take. But people that can uh, fillet shad are much in demand at this time of year. Do you fish as much now as you used to? Do I? Yeah. No. And that's been a problem. I mean, I, by way of that, I can say, you know, I do a lot of exploring on foot. I do a lot of walking. And, uh, and that has kind of replaced, in a way, it replace fishing for me. I, I got very much into taking plastic bags out of trees. I remember that. And I, with a buddy, I invented a, a, a bag snagging device for which we got a patent. And that was our thing. <laughs> I need one of those because there's so a couple great. kites hanging in trees oh, yeah, in my neighborhood right now. He, he, he wrote about this. And when I read what he wrote about plastic shopping bags and trees, once you start looking. Oh, yeah. It's a new evil <laughs> you need to be aware of is birthday balloons. Birthday balloons. There is not a place. You could go to the wildest like ass place. Like hunting elk up in the mountains, there's one land. There on is the ground. no place you can go anymore. Well, you were talking about. Without a birthday balloon land there. Burmese pythons. And I went way out in all those places where there are no roads. When I, I did a piece about Burmese pythons for oh, Smithsonian. Yeah. Oh. And we're out there. There's no vehicle traffic out there. Uh, and the only trash you see out there is birthday balloons yep. and other types of balloons. But yeah, those are everywhere. But that, I got very much into finding, you know, places and they're all over the city. They used to be less so now. And going with this bag snagger, we could reach up fairly high and take bags out. And that was a hunter gatherer kind of thrill especially getting a bag from a really high tree. We had extensions that we could put on the pole. <laughs> trophy, trophy bag. Oh, man. We had ones. We kept stuff that we took out. <laughs> you know, like we took a lawn chair out from uh, down by, after the big floods, of the Miss, uh, Mississippi floods, we went to uh, St. Genevieve, Missouri, and there was stuff in trees that have floated there. That didn't have to be carried by the wind. And the stuff that floated and drowned, there were like small rooms up in trees, you know, and this was because the water was so deep. And uh, so we took, you know, like tractor tires and, and uh, all kinds of huge stuff, uh, lots of items of clothing. Uh, it used to be that you took a lot of cassette tape out of trees, yep. which mm -hmm. is hellaciously difficult to get out. And now you don't anymore because people don't have cassettes anymore. So in Jersey, they just banned plastic bags. Uh, Outright. Uh, for shopping, yeah. And uh, that really reduces it. You know, in Ireland, they, uh, they call bags and trees witches' knickers. <laughs> and after a long period of having these bags and trees, they outlawed them and they don't have bags and trees anymore, I am told. So, Man.
So that's more what I got into rather than I, – I still do fish. I fish in the Delaware. I fish for smallmouth. The thought of an 11-pound smallmouth is staggering. Six. No, 11. What am I saying? Six. That's real common. Yeah, 11-pound yeah, smallmouth. Oh, they no, got I, some big ones in the Susquehanna. You're not far from that. Yeah. I haven't fished the Susquehanna. Have it's you? good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So did you write a proposal for your Bronx book? <laughs> uh, I explained it. <laughs> I didn't write a proposal. But so, so. You're like, I want to be clear. <laughs> I'm turning in an explanation of the book, but this is not a proposal. I was, yeah, I was down on proposals. I thought that they got you thinking already is sometimes when you read a book, the first page is the proposal. You know, like I see the guy's already thinking in these terms. I want you to, I want to think more fluidly about something. But this, the Bronx is the only part of New York City that is the continent. New York City is an archipelago. So you have Manhattan, you have Staten Island, and you have Long Island, which is Queens and Brooklyn. And then there are a lot of other islands around there. And the Bronx is the continent. And that's where in fact, America is sort of, you know, from a geographic point of view, that's where America begins. And the, uh, the something in, in, I think it was the piece you did about that guy who raises white or who has uh, white tails on his farm in Wisconsin in the Driftless area, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful country. I need to point out, he does not raise them. I know. Sorry. Oh, okay. He doesn't raise them. <laughs> I don't mean to say that. He, he, uh, he. he he assists, he assists, assists in their existence through land right. stewardship. But I think it was he who said that he was interested in how a place affects the people in it mm-hmm. and how the people in a place affect the place. Yeah. And to me, that's what I'm trying, what I have tried to do with the Bronx, that it's a, it's a human geography. And this was a place that was beat on mercilessly during the era of our country after World War II when we built highways everywhere. So they just flattened the Bronx with highways and tore down lots of neighborhoods. And the Bronx kind of was reeling and and burned, and it was famous for burning when it was, you know, on Howard Cosell on the... uh, uh, It was in a World Series game, and the Goodyear blimp had a picture uh, of Yankee Stadium, and then it kind of panned a little bit to one side, and there was a burning building. And Howard Cosell said, said the Bronx is burning, supposedly. Oh, that's what that came from? Yeah. And and that era, you know, thousands and thousands of buildings burned in the Bronx. And From it, arson? It was not so much arson as that you had very old buildings and you had the baby boom. <laughs> And you had a lot of kids living there, and kids were just beating on the buildings. You couldn't, oh, okay. and it was redlined. So all that place was redlined. You couldn't I, get. I don't a, know what that means. Redline means you can't get a loan to fix the building. You okay. can't get a loan. Kind for of like anything. condemned. It's not exactly no. condemned. It's just like a, a, a warning to potential lenders that this is, according to the government, you can't. Uh, this is a dangerous place to lend, and you cannot get insurance in this place. Okay. And so the buildings were just sitting there and they didn't get fixed up and it was just a whole bunch of factors came together but sort of part of the plot of my book is that as that happened kids in the bronx in their teens invented hip-hop and hip-hop was invented in the bronx and that story of how it how it was invented and who invented it and the people who did it uh is just to me it was just really fascinating so 
to me, the Bronx is a place in between and that the in-betweenness of a place can get it really torn up and over, uh, overrun in a way. And people, you don't, you don't pay attention to the place that you drive through, you, you know, one, one thing that you do is you go to that you on your show do is that you go to specific places and you see how people have made that place live, you mm-hmm. know. And that each place is different and that we, we haven't really thought in those terms. We've thought in great big generalities about places. And now I think you have to think much more specifically about a, what a place is. And the people who saved the Bronx were people who thought of um, the Bronx as this specific place where they grew up. They were proud to be here. Uh, they weren't going anywhere. And they saved the Bronx. The people who lived in the Bronx saved it. And uh, so... It's a story that uh, I don't think a lot of people know. People have I write about places where people have a preconceived idea of what it's like. You know, the Great Plains, uh, people would say from New York, oh, I flew over that. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot there. You think there's nothing there? There's a lot there. You know, or people will say, oh, Siberia, you know, it's cold, it's prisons. Well, yeah, but there's a lot other there's a lot more going on there. And I kind of like to, to treat a place as almost as if it was a person and you don't want to um, generalize in a stupid way about it. You know, you don't want to generalize about any part of, you know, the world because uh, each place is different and the people in the places are different. So, When will that book come out? I hope next year. Is it with your normal publisher? Yeah, same publisher. What are you going to do next now that you finish that? I don't know. I haven't really decided. I wanted to do a book about steamboat explosions. <laughs> <laughs> See, this reaction makes me think I should That's do a fun. book about steamboats. <laughs> because they blew up all the time. And you can find stories of steamboats in the middle of Mississippi that blew up and people were ended up on either sides of the river. Oh, really? I mean, huge explosions where people would just, you know, and the, you know, it, there's a lot of cool stuff about steamboat explosions. You should write that proposal. The, <laughs> I would never do a proposal. What I'll do is I'll say, go to uh, Stephen Ranella's podcast, and this is where it you'll, started. Yeah, go, to, go to this blank mark, and you'll, and you'll hear my pitch. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the problem with explosions is they happen, and then there's the plot kind of has to start up again, you know. It's a little bit tricky as a plot device, explosions. They're so usually at the end. blew up and blew people to both sides of the river. Absolutely. There's a very funny book, wow. unintentionally funny book, that came out in like 1857 called Disasters on the Western Rivers. <laughs> and it has woodcuts of steamboats blowing up. And it'll say, you know... The explosion of the St. Mary's. And then there's be this blam of all these steamboat parts flying. And then you turn a page and it'll be like, you know, the explosion of the city of Memphis. And there'll be another woodcut of a steamboat blowing up. What's the book called? It's called Disasters on the Western Rivers. And it came out in like 1857 or something. You write a book about guides called the same thing. Yep. (laughs) That'd be really cool. That would be that. The illustrations of those explosions always include some person silhouetted by the flames. Exactly. Which I appreciate. Yeah. It's, it's a very it's consistent tr- thing. It's really true. What about a bird watcher's guide to picking out uh, trophy bags from trees? 
Well, I was going to do a Bags and Trees book. I even Coffee had some, table book. Somebody was offering to do that. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I didn't. Somehow we didn't end up doing that. And that was because we were a little bit early when we were doing it. If we did it now, we would do something online. And I think we would get a lot of people that would be interested in it. But, you know, you age out of that. It's, it's Picking bags. It's really hard work. You're holding something up like that and stuff falls down on you. And I had one time I saw this thing up in a tree and it was really nasty looking. And it was a terry cloth towel. <laughs> and it was kind of bagged out a little bit, and it was hanging from one branch to another, kind of hammock-like. And I thought, ooh, that thing's full of water. And so I have my snagger has a hook on the end. And I went up and hooked into that uh, terry cloth towel, and a rat ran right down the pole <laughs> I was directly at me. And I was like, wow. I, I was going to pole 100 feet. <laughs> I mean, and the guy, my friend Tim, who I was doing it with, Said he looked at me and he thought I had been electrocuted. He thought I had cut into a wire. And I mean, but to have a rat looking right at you, running down the pole. And the thing is, he he got pretty close, and before I could drop it, and then he jumped to a tree, and then he jumped to the roof of uh, like a, a store nearby. But I mean, rats. That was a high. That was a long jump. They can really fly. They're amazing. So you have a necessary gear. Chapter, right. and then you yeah. have some cautionary tales. Right. Wildlife That's conflicts. A wildlife conflicts. Yep. Electricity, wildlife conflicts. Elec- it's yeah. great. It's great. I have to clear up our, who wrote A Boy With A Gun. Give okay. a Boy A Gun. So, Give A Boy A Gun, a true story of law and disorder in the American West. That's the Claude Dallas story. Jack Olson. Told you. Uh-huh. Give A Boy A Gun. <laughs> Not Jack Olson. <laughs> Strasser Todd. What's that give a boy gun about? It's an epistolary tale for young adults by Todd Strasser, first published in 2000. Epistolary. Dude, how many young adults out there are going to see a book that says an epistolary tale for young adults and pick that up? It's, you know, I don't know. I'm no marketer, but crying out loud. Well, back in the days of kids being in libraries all the time, yeah, I probably would have been like, give a boy a gun. Great. Probably, oh, yeah. they would have. No, the name would have hooked him because they wanted a gun. Yeah. But then the epistolary part, they would have lost him. Yeah, I'd be like, pistols, cool. <laughs> hey, give a piece of advice for, um, give a piece of it writerly, because you used to give me a lot of writer's advice. What? Can, before that, can I ask a question both of you? Did the whole... Um, like, don't write in a way where you start by explaining what you're going to write, exp- then you write what you're going to write, and then explain what is that? No, I think that was, not... that was one of my own annoyances. Okay. All right. I was well, I, where that... you start by, yeah, how do I put it? You start by explaining what you're going to write. You kind of explain what you're going to write, then, and then you, you write, write it, it, and then you explain what you just wrote. Yeah. I mean, I does that make any sense? That... No. Uh, it I think is that was... a common structure. Yeah. You know, it's a common structure of sermons, for example. You know, say, this is what I'm going to be telling you about. And then they tell you, and then they tell you what they told you about. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not uncommon. But no, you're saying advice about... Give some writerly advice for aspiring writers. Uh, hit them where they ain't. <laughs> <laughs> What's that mean? I, well, you know, isn't that hitting advice? Like in baseball, you know, you, I mean... Um, when I moved to Missoula, I mean, this is a long way around to saying this, but when I moved to Missoula, 
There's a central building there on campus, and it has a big high spire. Maybe yep. you remember no, this. No, no, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, Cal should know. Was it something to do with the Mansfields or something? I don't know. I know what you're talking it about. It might have to do with the Mansfields. In on the Oval? Yeah. Okay. And when we got there that week, somebody, nobody knew who, climbed up on that spire and impaled a pumpkin on this spire. Mm-hmm. How they did it was absolutely a mystery. You know, you just, but it was a risky thing to do. And that, like, I mean, I, I was careful talking to young writers because I don't want to tell them to go out and do something dangerous. But if you pay attention to what people are writing about and what people are thinking about, it will run to a type. There's certain kinds of things that, that just everybody's sort of thinking the same thing. And that's the way it is with just human beings. And see the thing that people aren't thinking about. In the way for me, the Bronx is an example. Nobody's thinking about the Bronx. Uh, and or you know people are, but it wasn't like a subject that people to me is a light a light bulb. But the other thing is do something that other people are afraid to do. Because if you do that, you have got a book already. You know, I mean Neil Armstrong steps on the moon, he's got a book. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're uh, you know if you do something that other people don't do, you might not even write about that thing. It would just put you in a frame of mind where you could, you had authority where you felt you had something to tell people. You know, if you do something that people are, like drive across Siberia, most people would say, don't do that. Uh, Why do that? But if you do it, then you have something to write about. So that's sort of just a simple nonfiction way of doing it. How people write fiction is another question. I don't, I have written one nonfiction, I have written one novel and, uh, uh, it was called The Cursing Mommy's Book of Days. I had this character <laughs> called The Cursing Mommy who starts out to make like chili and she's telling you how she makes the chili and then everything goes wrong and she's just cursing like crazy. And uh, this was about how she kind of, uh, it was a year in her life and it was, you know, it was a, an attempt. I don't really feel that fiction is my is my uh, thing. But, but for nonfiction, it's a question of looking and seeing what other people are doing and what other people aren't doing and telling something that you feel like really people should know. I mean, and, and you look for stuff like that. So I don't know. What would your writerly advice be? Steve? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I got a, there's a work ethic. Like you're, you're not a preachy person, but there's a work ethic component. And I don't know, you might not remember the story. Uh, just as you mentored me, you had you were mentoring some other guy after me, and somehow you had gotten something lined up for them. You'd gotten a writing piece lined up for them. Yeah, I don't remember. And they told you they couldn't do it because they had to go on family vacation. Yeah. And you were done with that person. <laughs> <laughs> now that's. <laughs> You were just so, like, dismayed and blown away. I, I don't remember who the, what the specific person would have been, but that's It was like, like, that's it. Yeah, if somebody says, well, I also have to do such and such. No, you don't. You don't also have to do anything else. I, can't, I just remember you telling me that. You were just like, and so ended that mentorship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to do trivia next. You're going to stick around. Okay. Do you know about what I'm talking about? Uh, I haven't. I haven't listened to a trivia show of yours yet. You see that where it says uh, 
Where's the visitors thing? Yeah. Bottom, oh, bottom right. Guess. We've had eight wins by trivia guests. Really? Wow. Okay. I think you might. Yeah, I, you have, a, you well. have a, he has a, you yeah. have a very good chance of doing. Okay. Well, I'll take a I'll take a shot. Okay. Um, for those of you listening, you want to check it out. The writer Ian Fraser, author of a bunch of books, the ones that for for our audience, I would say. The Fish's Eye, Great Plains, and then it's, I think, uh, Travels in Siberia. Great Plains, Fish's Eye, Travels in Siberia. Okay. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. Feel like, is that, is that insulting? No, not at all. They're all adventure books in a way. I put that, I put Great Plains on, like, anytime I have to do, like, a, like greatest books of all time, favorite books of all time. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that. that I mean, was... it's just oh, it's a good. It's like I mean, it changed my worldview, man. Well, it really did. I'm I'm honored. I'm I know you wrote stuff. a long time ago. You wrote a ton of stuff since then, and maybe it's annoying to hear about some book you wrote a long time. It doesn't bother me to hear about stuff I wrote a long time ago. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But uh, you know, you think you have to do. You want to do the next thing too. So sure. Um, it, it, uh, sometimes you just, there will be the one thing that you do and that, that might be, that might be it. But, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm always, I'm looking for the next thing and I, I feel, I feel good about Steamboat Explosions. No, I'm feeling good about it too. So (laughs) what'd you say the Bronx book's going to be called? It's going to be called Paradise Bronx. Okay. And then the other one will be called Disasters on Western Rivers. <laughs> it Redux. <might> <laughs> no, it might be, actually. That, I love that title, Disasters on the Western Rivers. Yeah, you can start a rock band with the same name. Yeah. All right, stay tuned. Uh, you'll see. What, what always comes out the next day, right? Uh, two days, Wednesdays. Oh. So if you're listening with this hot off the press, it's Monday. Uh, join in Wednesday for the trivia show. In which Ian Fraser maybe wins. Probably not. Probably not. Maybe. Try to build up suspense. I want to keep down expectations. So I'll see you all at the trivia show. Thanks for joining. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. 
You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.